It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sarah Weibel, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. She's going to talk about uh, ongoing inflammation's role in HIV infection. Um, she has a particular interest in CMV, and for those of you who've been practicing HIV medicine since the beginning of the epidemic, it's interesting to see how CMV keeps entering and leaving and entering and all the uh, uh, questions that arose over the last 25 years. Dr. Weibel is the person to answer all those questions on inflammation as well as CMV. Thank you so much. So it's a great honor for me to be here and talk about how we can get ho hotter while we get older. And I do not have any relevant uh, uh, conflict of interest yet. So. <laughs> Uh, I hope that after my talk, uh, you, you may understand uh, why and how HIV-infected people uh, tend to have uh, some unsuccessful aging trajectories uh, compared to HIV-uninfected, and uh, identify some of the possible drivers and what we might be able to do to help our patients uh, um, improve their aging process. <coughs> so... We, we all know that the antiretroviral therapy has been one of the main success in, in medicine. HIV started as a high deadly disease and within relative short time has become a chronic disease. And most HIV-infected people now live with HIV and can have a relatively healthy and long life. Uh, the fact that people live longer, of course, have, has shifted the age uh, uh, composition of the epidemics. And uh, in 2001, if we look at people over uh, the age of 50 that live with HIV, we only had 17%. And over a year, this has raised continuously. And uh, in 2016, we have almost half of our HIV-infected population in the US, and specifically 47% that is over the age of 50. And this will uh, uh, probably increase over the last years. And this is a combination of people living longer and some of our prevention efforts. So these slides shows a similar, similar data collected in Europe. And this is projected uh, up to 2030. And uh, the color are the different age categories, and the darker color are the younger people. And you can really see how uh, between 2010 and 2030, we do expect a for further shift in the age of the epidemic. And uh, the older people over uh, 50 will eventually become the vast ma majority of the population, at least in, uh, in uh, high-income countries. So, here, I, this uh, is, um, is a figure from a recent review that was, uh, uh, did a meta-analysis about uh, the most frequent cause of death in HIV-infected people. And here you can see high-income countries uh, compared to developing countries. So non-AIDS cause of death right now are more than half uh, of death related to HIV-infected in high-income countries. Like, it's specifically... According to this review, 53% of people with HIV die for non-AIDS-related disease. This is lower in developing countries, about 35%, and it's also lower in sub-Saharan Africa. And the main drivers are similar to the HIV-uninfected population, and it's cardiovascular disease that you can see in blood, in blue, 
uh, red is cancer, green is liver. So these are the main driver of uh, morbidity and death among HIV-infected people in, in the US and high-income country. So here I wanted to show cardiovascular disease as one example. So in the last uh, 10 years, uh, there has been a continuous increase uh, of cardiovascular disease-related morbidity and mortality among HIV-infected people. And this is the opposite uh, as what we see in the general population and even in a population with some other sort of chronic disease, like, for example, polyarthropathy, like other inflammatory disease, uh, are tend to decrease over time, while HIV-infected population uh, cardiovascular co complications are increasing significantly. And this is true almost for every age-related disease, like diabetes, renal failure, fracture. Like HIV-infected population are always uh, affected uh, a little bit more, a little bit earlier than the HIV-uninfected. And... Uh, and this is also true for mortality in general. This is a figure from a recent review from 2016 where they plotted uh, mortality ra rates uh, um, for the HIV uninfected compared to uh, HIV infected people um, before 2000, 2005, 2005, and then more recently. And you can see that even if mortality is, has improved, there is still a gap between HIV-infected people and HIV-uninfected. And this gap is about 10 years, and this 10-year shorter life expectancy, in average, of course, is also true among those people that are suppressed on antiretroviral therapy with no other uh, comorbidity. So something about HIV seems uh, still affects uh, um, our population despite all our efforts. Okay, so I have my first burning question. Why do HIV-infected people suffer from unsuccessful aging? So, unhealthy lifestyle, genetic predisposition, heart toxicity, persistent inflammation, all of the above. Okay. So we are split between persistent inflammation, all of the above. I, I guess I, there was some bias because of my topic, probably, right? So <laughs> it's actually all, it was actually all of the above. Like the fact that uh, HIV-infected people have suffered from unsuccessful aging is multifactorial. It's not only one uh, factor that contributes. Persistent inflammation, for sure, is an important factor, and this is what we will... Uh, talk today, but of course, uh, antiretroviral toxicity, other drugs, uh, uh, genetic lifestyle, so genetic and lifestyle, like HIV-infected people tend to smoke more and overall have uh, more uh, risk factors, which contribute, of course, uh, to health in general. So, there has a, I, I, probably most of you are familiar with the SMART study that has been done um, in, uh, almost 10 years ago, 10 years ago. And I always say, like, the, 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 the name was SMART, the study retrospectively probably not as much. And people were very concerned about uh, toxicity of antiretroviral therapy. And so this study was designed to compare one arm of people 
who were continuously on antiretroviral therapy and an other arm of people that went off and on, depending on the CD4 T-cell count. And the reason was that people thought that less antiretroviral therapy exposure might be beneficial. But the study was interrupted because uh, it, it turned out to be the opposite. Like the people that were on intermittent antiretroviral therapy had uh, much more, more, much higher morbidity and mortality, which made us probably realize the importance of inflammation uh, in driving some of this complication. And inflammation even made it on the cover of Times, uh, the secret killer. And I kind of like these slides. Uh, um, I borrowed it from Peter Hunt. Uh, so the first clue that we have about inflammation being one important driver is from nature, actually. So two different monkeys. Uh, one is a natural host for SIV, which is the monkey version of HIV. And the other one um, gets sick of SIV, both uh, ex, um, experience high level of viral replication, but Sutimangabi uh, do not develop the, the disease, uh, while Rhesus macaque get, get sick and develop AIDS and die. And the striking difference between these two is that these uh, monkeys develop very minimal immune activation compared to Rhesus macaque. And we, so humans uh, are more <laughs> like react to HIV more closer to the rhesus macaque. So this is one clue that we had, that an additional clue showing that H, uh, inflammation might be one of the reasons why we get sick from the virus. Um, so we know here again, people that uh, are infected with HIV have higher level of inflammation compared to HIV uninfected. And this uh, decrease when we start antiretroviral therapy um, but we do not get back to uh, the levels that we see with HIV uninfected. Okay, let's, now we want to talk, what are the consequences of this inflammation? Why is it important? So inflammation can cause uh, lymphoid tissue fibrosis. So if uh, our tissues are uh, exposed to inflammation, um, eventually it becomes fi fibrotic. So here you can see the difference between like a lymph node from an HIV infected versus an uninfected. And this is of course associated with low naive T cells, poor CD4 T cell recovery, in general impaired immune function. And this has been shown very nicely by a study from Peter Hunt where he showed that people with high inflammation are also the one that recover uh, uh, less CD4 T cells. So having high level of inflammation at the beginning of your infection um, means that you will be less likely to recover um, CD4 T cells, even when you are on therapy. And this again, these are data from the SMART study. Uh, so the main uh, marker that they looked at are interleukin-6 and D-dimer. These are two very unspecific uh, markers of inflammation, and they were both highly correlated with uh, cardiovascular disease and with mortali mortality. So the SMART study has been one of the seminal studies uh, um, showing inflammation associated with uh, uh, this kind of adverse events. Uh, and these are other data, interleukin-6. Interleukin-6 is a very popular marker uh, for inflammation, and it shows that if you measure level of interleukin-6 
at baseline, you can predict the number of cardiovascular events up to four years. So in this figure, you can see the four quartile of interleukin-6 level at baseline and how uh, people um, uh, developed cardiovascular event in the next four years. So interleukin-6 is one marker that we really like to use when we design clinical uh, trials, also as part of the ACTG, because it has been pretty robust data showing that it's associated with uh, all sorts of um, uh, adverse outcome. This uh, is an, another paper uh, that shows that uh, inflammation, and here they use a, slight, a different marker, soluble 163. This is more specific for monocytes. It's associated with neurocognitive impairment. So again, HIV infected, higher level of inflammation, more neurocognitive impairment. So I only showed a couple because of, uh, of example, uh, but there have been hundreds, thousands of papers showing inflammation and disease outcome and uh, all sorts of uh, disease like cardiovascular cancer, diabetes, uh, pneumonia. Like, it, there is consistent evidence in the literature that inflammation is associated with uh, adverse outcome. That's true also for HIV uninfected, by the way, but of course, uh, HIV itself uh, uh, boosters inflammation, and so we see it more in, in the setting of HIV. Okay, so my second question is, what is causing inflammation during suppressive antiretroviral therapy? And uh, so that is not... Uh, so the question is actually what is not causing inflammation. So translocation of bacterial products, co-infections like cytomegalovirus, cannabis use, residual HIV replication, high-fat diet. Oh, that's, that's good. People always get excited about this. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Like, uh, all these other factors uh, can cause inflammation. Cannabis use, uh, on the other side, has been shown to reduce inflammation. Okay, and this is a, a figure from a nice review from Steve Dix uh, that shows all the possible, uh, so some of the possible uh, uh, driver of inflammation. Again, microbial translocation, cytomegalovirus, toxicity of antiretroviral therapy and other drugs. HIV replication, and uh, some loss of regulatory T cells. And here I'm going a little bit more in detail. Like even when people are suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, we know and there is raising evidence that some, a little bit of replication is still going on. In blood, as if when we use very, very sensitive uh, uh, assay to measure, most people actually have three to five copies of HIV detectable in blood. And this is particularly true in, uh, in the anatomic compartments, where sometimes you have less antiretroviral therapy, uh, there are uh, different dynamics with the immune system. It has been shown that in lymph node and gut and uh, in uh, the brain, sometimes you can find evidence of replication even when uh, HIV is suppressed in blood. And this might be one of the drivers of inflammation. Microbial translocation, as you might know, HIV attacks the gut because the gut is rich on CD4 and uh, um, bacteria that usually are in as part of your microbiome uh, tra uh, 
migrate across the mucosa and can reach blood, and this is one important source of inflammation. And uh, even, also, there are markers uh, of uh, microbial translocation, for example, uh, LPS, this is, uh, is a part of the um, membrane of gram-negative bacteria, and if you measure it in blood, it can give you a little bit of an idea about how much translocation you got. And you see, like, HIV-infected people have higher level compared to N uninfected, and even when they are treated, they mostly do not revert back to uh, levels uh, similar to HIV uninfected. Cytomegalovirus, that's kind of my baby uh, in my lab. Uh, I am very interested in looking at how cytomegalovirus uh, might affect uh, inflammation. And uh, we publish multiple data showing that not only being seropositive, because almost everybody with HIV is seropositive for CMV, but really having a subclinical replication of cytomegalovirus is associated with immune dysfunction and activation. And now, this is my favorite question. What proportion of HIV-infected men present evidence of subclinical cytomegalovirus replication despite high CD4 T cell count? So when CD4 T cell count are over 500, there is no CMV. Everything is under control. Less than 20%, 20 to 20, 39, 40 to 59, more than 60. UCSD people should know, and Eric too. Okay, that's split. So it's actually more than 60%. Um, men, uh, HIV-infected men, has, have a lot of cytomegalovirus, and the most concentrated uh, place is semen, which makes sense, right? If you are a virus and you want to transmit yourself, uh, you need to replicate it in semen. But you can find it also in saliva and... Um, breast milk, and in all sorts of uh, uh, mucosa and um, secretions. But semen is very concentrated. Okay, so what can we do to reduce inflammation? So early antiretroviral therapy, that's key. This is one of the main uh, interventions that have been shown to reduce significantly inflammation. However, these are data from the Thai cohort, and if you are familiar with the Thai cohort, this is the biggest primary infection cohort. They follow thousands of high-risk MSM, and they see a lot of seroconversion, and then they start antiretroviral therapy really within days from seroconversion. And even uh, in people that start therapy earlier than 12 weeks uh, uh, anti-infection, uh, level of inflammation are still uh, higher than HIV uninfected. And the HIV uninfected are from the same group. So even if you start as early as a couple of days after exposure, it looks like inflammation is still um, uh, increased. It's not as much as the chronics, which are here in purple, but it's still higher. <coughs> so. Antiretroviral therapy intensification has been a big deal uh, in the last, also earlier. Uh, the, the, the hypothesis was that if people have some kind of residual replication by intensifying the antiretroviral regimen, maybe they can decrease inflammation. 
and there has been mixed uh, data. So some people showed uh, uh, benefit, other study did not show benefit. Most of uh, positive study were when the background uh, therapy was included a protease inhibitor. But I, I saw, so far there is no consistent evidence that intensifying uh, antiretroviral therapy has a clinically relevant benefit on inflammation. So there are so a numbers of study um, with all sorts of uh, compounds trying to reduce inflammation. For example, this uh, was presented two years ago at CROI and uh, has been published in CID in the meantime. Uh, a st statin compared to placebo looks like uh, um, there was a decrease in inflammation. And uh, as part of the ACTG, we design a lot of trials all the time, and there are a lot of studies ongoing uh, where the endpoint is decreased inflammation when we hope to find one drug that really will make the difference. And uh, I actually <laughs> included this because we, we really try to postpone all this complication. Uh, um, and right now, like we try, ongoing trials are with sirolimus, methotrexate, aspirins, as a trial has been done with cyclosporine, chloroquine, interleukin-21, like there is a long list, and most of them showed some benefit, but it was not enough to justify like any further um, study to bring it into the clinic. And of course, some of these also have considerable adverse events. Um, so, okay, and now, and this is actually something that I want to point out. Like, there has been evidence since here that diet and exercise, and we all know it, but I think that so there is trials uh, that show that diet and exercise have positive uh, outcomes uh, in all sorts of, uh, of disease. And this is uh, true for HIV uninfected. And uh, in the last year, more and more evidence comes uh, also for HIV-infected people. Doing randomized trial of exercise is not an easy thing to do, as you can imagine, because people, they always are very motivated at the beginning, and then they drop off, and you cannot really control the exercise that people do, and that's similar also for diet, but there is clear evidence that exercise and healthy diet uh, uh, are beneficial for all of us and might be even more important uh, for HIV-infected people. <clears throat> so, in summary, I would say despite optimal antiretroviral therapy, HIV uh, is associated with a slightly shorter lifespan, um, more or less uh, 10 years, and an increase in some age-associated morbidity. And they um, most of the time come earlier than the HIV in uninfected. Immune activation and inflammation that persists uh, despite antiretroviral therapy has been shown repeatedly to predict uh, these events. Uh, there are many um, compounds that have been studied, probiotic, diet, exercise, may hold promise, uh, and uh, we need further study and evidence to do a recommendation for the clinic targeted intervention directed to the real driver of inflammation also may hold promise. So in particular, of course, uh, cytomegalovirus. Uh, right now, we do not have uh, a safe drug. Also, uh, valgancyclovir, I'm not saying it's not safe, but like the adverse events are a little bit too important to justify giving it to healthy people uh, without any CMV disease. 
we are waiting for newer and uh, uh, safer drugs uh, um, coming up, hopefully in the next uh, in the next year. And I am very interested in uh, in a clinical trial to see if uh, uh, suppressing cytomegalovirus might have a positive impact on aging. Okay, so another question: What are you going to recommend to slow aging in your patient? That's an easy one. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. I'm coming home, baby, now. <laughs> I love this 6%. That would be <laughs> yes, exercise more. Like, okay, here. So there is a lot of research going on uh, to try to find, uh, like, uh, an easy way to decrease inflammation and fill the nine years gap of survival and um, complications that occur in HIV-infected patients. So far, there is no easy intervention that we feel to recommend uh, to use in the clinical practice. But I will stress that HIV, so we need to keep it in mind and follow HIV-infected people even closer than you will do with your general patient for all the age-related um, disease and start earlier with screening, like get regular cancer screening, uh, enforce uh, um, control of risk factor for cardiovascular disease, uh, keep smoking, uh, start antiretroviral therapy and be compliant with the therapy, that's key, exercise regularly and maintain a healthy weight and a healthy diet. Also, the aspirin point, I'm not saying we need to do anything special, but there have been studies showing that HIV-infected people get aspirin for primary prevention less than the HIV-uninfected. And this might be because provide, also they already have so many pills and we don't want to burden them with an additional pill, but in reality that might be an important step to prevent some of the cardiovascular complications. And of course, avoid and treat co-infection like hepatitis, syphilis, uh, tuberculosis. Make sure they get all the vaccine they need. And uh, until now, we do not have any recommendation to treat cytomegalovirus unless, of course, it's a florid disease. And so I wanted to... God, I thought I took out all the animation. but So I wanted to finish with this, like... A, also, Aging is, not, it, aging is scary, but at UCSD we have an institute, it's called uh, um, Institute of Successful Aging, uh, and it's led by Dilip Jesty, and I really love his attitude towards aging, and, and he did many studies where they show that despite uh, a decline in physical health, there are actually a lot of positive feeling about uh, aging and satisfaction of life race and people that are older are actually happier than people that are younger. So um, I thought that was a nice end a conclusion to my talk. And so I wanted to thank everybody like Peter Hunt, he's from UCSF, he's shared a lot of his slides and all the people at UCSD that helped me with the talk and generate the data. Thank you.
Great. So while we're waiting for some questions, um, I'd like to maybe start with one. And that is that, you know, the, the guidelines for cholesterol management, for blood pressure management, are getting sort of more and more uh, stringent and obviously looking to comorbidities. So where would you put HIV as a comorbidity? Should we be trying for better sort of cholesterol management consistent with people who've had prior cardiovascular, documented cardiovascular events, hypertension, blood pressure, the same thing? Where would you rank HIV in that, and what should be our targets? So that's a good question. And just, just to clarify, I'm, I'm not a clinically active person, so I'm not familiar exactly with the guideline, but I think that what I can say from my part is to stress and remember that HIV um, is substantially increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So I don't want to really say which category, but I think that we need to think about HIV-infected people as a much higher risk than the general population. And and act accordingly. And this means if they have high pressure or if they are some sort of dyslipidemia, um, I will surely um, address it uh, and not wait and see if it gets better. Or I, I will actually treat them. But I'm, I don't want to say anything because I, I don't want to make my own guidelines. <laughs> so the next question is, and I paid a lot of attention to your satisfaction with life and physical disability and where I fall on that continuum. But the question is, essentially, are people uh, who are happier as they get older, is it a function of selection bias um, so that if you live to 90, you've you know, basically got there because you're a happier person when you were 20? Um, and I guess the other question is, is, you know, is, are there similar subpopulation studies, say, looking at HIV? Are people who are 70 with HIV as happy as people who are 70 without HIV? So that's actually a very good question, and I agree there is for sure a selection bias uh, of people that live longer and they are happier and probably also have a healthier lifestyle. And regarding the HIV-infected uh, question, there is a study going on, exactly Dilip Justice, the PI, where we, we are assessing uh, um, the age trajectories and satisfaction of life in the HIV-infected population, and the study is now is in year three, all pe people are recruited, uh, but we don't have the data yet. But this, so we are looking into it. So uh, a, question, a couple questions actually asking you to maybe elaborate a little bit on data regarding the benefits of statins to prevent cardiovascular disease in HIV-infected patients. You know, um, are there more robust data? There was a question particularly about uh, pitavastin um, in HIV patients because there's a large randomized trial. I don't know if it's just completed, if it's still ongoing? So it's ongoing. It's ongoing. That's reprieve, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the, so the question about the pit of acid is the, the trial's ongoing. There are, obviously there are, the Data Safety Monitoring Board looks at this, but at this point the study's still ongoing, and it's planned to go on for actually several more years. Sites all over town. Sites all over town being L.A., San Francisco town, and... Okay, multiple sites, still enrolling. And okay. the interesting thing about the study is that it's actually designed for people who do not qualify for a statin, right? Also, we do exclude people that has, have dyslipidemia. Like, it's really designed to see if statin will give a benefit uh, even in people with normal lipids. So again, I think that uh, there are multiple ways to uh, look clinical search for trials. Um, and again, I think the important point is that this, this, 
we should be aggressively treating patients who meet other disease comorbidities with statins at this point, but this study in particular is looking at people who don't otherwise qualify, and so therefore we'll, you know, expand um, our information at least around the use of this drug potentially, but again, uh, probably won't have data next year. Okay, um, and um, the, uh, the question, New, I don't think Donald Abrams is in the audience. Should be recommending cannabis to reduce inflammation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I think that this is what why most of the people. Uh, um, I went and did a similar talk uh, to the community in San Diego, and at the very end, that's the only thing that they remembered and that they asked me. <laughs> so I. I don't know, so there is surely no evidence right now that to recommend cannabis, like, but I think that medical cannabis in general has been accepted uh, more and more for all sorts of other, uh, and of course cannabis has some other issues, so I would say no, don't recommend it in your clinic. Um, and then there's a question about uh, stress and its effects on inflammation. Can this be quantified? Are there recommendations for how to discuss this with patients in terms of reducing stress. I certainly can remember patients early in the epidemic who thought that anger and stress actually improved their uh, quality of life and happiness. They were always angry and um, uh, at obviously uh, many of us in the audience, but also that it improved. So could you maybe elaborate a little bit on stress? Also Stress is associated with more inflammation, right? Stress, uh, also the cortisol response, and there are studies uh, showing that stress is a driver of inflammation. And it's always, also, if it was easy to say people don't stress, I get that would be a nice intervention. But unfortunately, that's not as easy. But so I agree, there are studies in human and animals uh, showing that uh, stress-induced cortisol peaks uh, uh, induce inflammation. And I, I can't remember where I saw this, but there was somebody that even uh, talked about people getting more inflamed before e exam, uh, like when they uh, met school, that like the inflammation was going up while they approached the exams. So I think there is evidence of that. So there's a question relating to, again, translocation of bacterial products across a sort of impaired gut membrane now depleted of uh, lymphoid tissue. And so are there interventions? The question deals with probiotics, antioxidants. Are there studies ongoing? You know, what's, is there some status on what we can do about this? So many studies have been done uh, to look at the um, effect of probiotics on microbial translocation, and they had very conflicting uh, uh, results, and most of it is because, again, it's very difficult to do a randomized trial and to control for all sorts of external probiotic. Like every time we eat a yogurt, we actually confound the interventions. Also, the ACTG, if I'm not wrong, has an ongoing trial, right? No? You're not sure? Well, also, I, I know that they were planning to design, and I don't know if they started yet, uh, a really well-designed, controlled trial to actually try to answer this question definitively. But um, the, you focus on CMV in part because of your own sort of uh, academic and research interests, but what about other viral reservoirs, Epstein-Barr, uh, HHV, 678, JC virus, et cetera? 
maybe some rules for other yes. uh, herpe, herpe, uh, DNA viruses? So all co-infections, like uh, all co-infections, of course, increase inflammation. So, and that's not true all, all, for virus, but also virus and all sorts of bacterial infection, malaria and uh, leishmania. There are a lot of literature showing that every co-infection comes with its own burden of inflammation. And, um, and so, of course, more co-infections together will cause more inf uh, inflammation. Like, Cytomagolavirus seem uh, to have a particular, uh, um, and I, I, I cannot really explain exactly why, and I think it's not known. Like, there is no other organism uh, that affects the immune system as much as cytomegalovirus. And if you think, that by the time we are 60, half of our T-cell repertoire is targeting cytomegalovirus. There is obviously something special about cytomegalovirus compared to other organisms. But I completely agree that it's not the only one. Like, and there's, I know that you're not necessarily a specialist in terms of some of the neurologic complications of HIV, but do you think inflammation in the central nervous system is playing a major role in cognitive changes, uh, or is it HIV itself without the inflammatory component? Certainly there are a, a large number of studies looking at statins and, neuroco and, uh, and neurocognitive changes. And my understanding is, at least in the non-HIV population, statins, which reduce inflammation, don't seem to change neurocognitive function in, um, uh, in advancing age. So. And I actually think that that's a very good question. Also, in the pre-art era, I think it, it has been shown uh, uh, clearly that inflammation was associated with neurocognitive impairment among HIV-infected people. Well, right now, when you do study where you really control and people are really suppressed, uh, infl inflammatory markers are not as strongly correlated with neurocognitive impairment as they were in mixed study or, st or study on with non-suppressed people. So I do believe that inflammation and neurocognition are not as strongly correlated uh, in the art era uh, as they were before. But I, I still think, as a, but there are still papers that show inflammation and neurocognition. So I think it might be not as strong with neurocognition as it is with cardiovascular disease, uh, but it surely plays a role. Good. So again, I want to thank Dr. Ginelli Weibel for her uh, really excellent overview of inflammation and HIV, and uh, I appreciate your coming north to uh, make this presentation. Thank you. Great.